Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel, out, the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at, at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. 
Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlet between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Well, good morning. Uh, we're looking at this passage, which uh, seems very far removed to where we are at this time, uh, but I think has got very clear and powerful lessons for us. The, the overarching kind of message you'll see up there on the screen. Uh, we're going to be speaking tonight, uh, this morning, about redemption, both its meaning and its implications. And you'll see that there are three kind of festivals uh, that were really described in this passage. Uh, the Passover, um, there was the consecration of the firstborn, and then there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, seems all very kind of removed from us, but hopefully we'll see that there are these strong lessons uh, for us. Now, um, the Exodus. The Exodus was the single greatest event in the experience of the people of God. It was absolutely seismic for them. We, we read in the passage that uh, we had this morning, after four centuries, over 400 years of slavery and of domination, generations had known nothing else but oppression and slavery. And yet this exodus takes place. This deliverance happens. And we have, as it describes, 600,000 men. And of course, there's women and there's children. And then there is a mixed multitude that kind of tags on as well. And they all move out of that slave camp that was Egypt, which seems just so overwhelming and all-powerful, and yet that land is left devastated by the plagues, and, and they're free, and, and they're free at last as they move out on this night. Now, we learned last week um, that there are implications that go far beyond what happened at this time. I mean, it was a tremendous thing, clearly, for them. But there are greater things that flow from this. We learned about the, the Passover lamb last week and how that points us to the Lord Jesus, who is the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. And what we're going to be learning today is this, that there is a greater exodus there is a greater deliverance and a greater freedom 
even than they experienced on that night. You say, I find that quite hard to believe. You know, if you, if you walked into the death camps of Egypt and uh, you walked around and you saw the, the cruelty and you saw the, the poverty and you saw the, the disease and just everything that was happening, could there be, could there be anything worse than that? Well, well, there is something worse than that. This is a picture, awful, although it, it was for them, it is a picture of a greater slavery that we need to again think about this morning. And that is the slavery of sin. I mean, sin is not just the fact that we do things that are wrong. Sin, sin is a, a pervasive principle that infects every one of our lives. And not just the lives of, of people, but the whole of the way in which our wor- world, and, and beyond our world actually, is blighted and dominated by this at every level. We think about ourselves and the way that we want to live our lives, and, and often we find it difficult to do that because there is almost this bias that pulls us down. And we look out upon our weary world today and we see all the conflict that we've been praying about. And we, we, we read the history of our world and we see the oppression and we see the greed and the, and the, and the corruption. And what is this? It is all part of the domination of sin. This, this, this terrible principle that is just all, per, all pervasive and which leads eventually to not just disease and frailty and failure, but it leads to death passing upon us all. It's all down to this. This is the awful domination that a picture like this is only pointing us to, for us to recognize today. But not only is this telling us about a a greater deliverance and a greater slavery that that we are subjected to, because all, all who sin are the slaves of sin. But it points us to a greater freedom as well. The great deliverance that, that they must have felt, the, the weight that was taken off their shoulders, walking on air as they, as they walked out of Egypt and, and all that that had represented for them. I mean, if the freedom that comes for those who believe in Christ is so great and is so significant that a new word is coined to describe it. And we, and we meet that word in our passage today. It's the word redeemed. It's the word redemption. I think in this passage, it's something like the second or, th- or third time that it's mentioned in the entire Bible. It's, it's a new word that's brought into being. You'll see it's mentioned a few times down in verse 13. You shall redeem with a lamb. And it's mentioned down in verse uh, 15 as well. The firstborn of my sons. I redeem. This, this great principle of, of freedom. And of course, Jesus speaks about this himself. He spoke about freedom and used that word. The Son makes you free. 
you will be free indeed. You will be truly free. But they talk about redemption. Away hundreds of years later in the the New Testament, they take this principle, they take this concept, and they apply it to our lives and our situation of being slaves to sin. And the reality, the possibilities that we can be redeemed in a greater sense than even they were. So, for instance, you'll read in Ephesians chapter 1 when Paul writes to the church there about Christ, he says this, in him, in him, we have redemption, even the forgiveness of our sins. Or, or, or Peter, when he writes his letter, he says, he says, you weren't redeemed with, with corruptible things like silver or, or gold from your empty way of life that was handed down to you by your forefathers. But you were redeemed with the, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb that was without blemish and without spot. And so we meet this great, this tremendous principle of, of spiritual redemption that is being really highlighted for us in our passage today. So what is redemption? What does it mean? Well, it's not just the idea of freedom. It's not just the idea of deliverance. It's the idea of deliverance because a price has been paid. These two points are essential. A price has been paid so that deliverance can take place. And Neville Chamberlain, you'll you'll remember, um, has often been criticized, probably rightly, uh, for his policy of appeasement to Nazi Germany and Hitler prior to the Second World War. Uh, Robert Harris, in his book, uh, Munich, gives, gives a bit of insight into his approach. Chamberlain was brought up during the First World War, and he saw the devastation. A whole generation wiped out, more or less, as far as Britain was concerned, the flower of a generation. So many sons and daughters uh, killed in the battlefields of Flanders. And, and he vowed that that would never happen again. He saw the terrible cost of war. And, and that was part of, of his, his whole emotion uh, in his negotiations at the time. The cost, the terrible cost. And so that's, that's really what we have to think about today when we think about redemption. Yes, there's freedom, but there's a cost. And the cost that is emphasized for us is the precious blood of Christ. Christ's blood was precious to his Father. He was his beloved Son, his precious Son, and he gave him up for us all so that we could be freed. Listen to this from one of the Psalms. It says this, Psalm 49, no one 
can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for his soul. For the soul is costly. It's of great price. Maybe I would love to be able to redeem my brother or my sister. Maybe I would love to redeem my children or my parents. Could I do something? Is there anything that I could possibly do that would free them from the the domination of sin and its consequences upon their life? I can't. I cannot pay that price. There is nothing that I can do. It is too costly a thing. The ransom of the soul is costly. It's of enormous price. The only price that can be paid that is adequate is the precious blood of Christ. It's the, it's the Lamb of God without blemish or without spot. Here's a, a little discursus here. You remember that when the, on the night of the Passover, when they were told to prepare the lamb, one of the things that they had to do was for four days, they had to examine that lamb from the 10th to the 14th day. They had to keep looking at that lamb to make sure it was an unblemished lamb. If there was any defect, defect in it, if there was any disease in it, if there was any deformity in it, it was excluded. They couldn't use the lamb. It had to be a perfect, a spotless, an unblemished lamb that was used on the Passover night. Why was that important? Why was that symbolic? Because it's pointing forward to Christ, the perfect lamb of God. Not physically unblemished, that's not the point, but spiritually and morally, the pure, the holy, perfect, sinless person that walks upon the stage of history sent from heaven. He is the only one precious enough, pure enough to pay the price of his own blood to redeem us from our sins. Now let me point out a couple of bits of detail from this passage. The first is from verse 43. This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Wow. All these foreigners have tagged along. Some of them are probably Egyptians from other nationalities. They, they, they tag on to the, the Israelites as they're taken out on the night of the Exodus. And, uh, you know, they're aware of the enormity of this, this event. You know, the plagues, everything that's taken place. And, and they want to be part of all of that. And they're aware that the instructions have been given about this Passover meal that is to be commemorated annually so that nobody forgets this great event. It is to be kept high up on the agenda year by year by year. And uh, some of them ask the question, well, here, here you are, you're, you're commemorating it, you're, you're going through the whole ritual. I mean, we would like to be part of that. We, we would like to join in on this. It's a great event. It's happening all over the country. You know, surely we can be part of that as well. No, sorry. Well, you can be. But before you can be, 
you have to officially and formally sit down and make a decision that you join yourself to the people of God. This is not just some sort of casual thing, I fancy a shot at this, let's just go with the flow. You have to make a deliberate choice that you're joining yourself to the people of God and you'll have to be circumcised before this takes place. Now, there's a message for all of us here as far as this is concerned. The Passover, the meaning of it, redemption, you know, freedom by the the payment of a price. I'd love to be part of that. How can I be part of that? Well, it involves a choice. It involves a decision. We just don't kind of drift into it. It's not just something I fancy doing today and then I'm on to something else tomorrow. It's for me to sit down and, and, and experience spiritual circumcision. You know, spiritual surgery, not of the body, but of the heart. Where my sin comes under the knife, if you like. And, and I, I need my sin removed. And I know that it's only Christ, the way, the truth, the life, who can do that and give me a new heart, spiritually speaking, new desires, new affections, centered upon God and on His Son. And I need to make that choice, just like these people had to make that choice before they were allowed to be part of the commemoration of the Passover. And so, we bring that to ourselves today, and we reflect on that, about my choice and my decision to commit myself to God's people and to Christ himself, as they needed to do. I mean, the initial group of people who um, experienced the first Passover. I mean, this was real to them. That night when they applied the blood to the door and, and they sheltered under the blood because they knew the destroying angel was coming through the land that night. And this was the only place of shelter for them. And, and they, were, they were trusting in the blood to be their protection. It was a refuge for them. And that's exactly where all of us need to come to. We're trusting in the blood of Christ, the only means of protection from condemnation from God. We sang that hymn, didn't we, earlier on there about the rock of ages who was cleft, who was split, who was riven for me. And I need to hide myself I mean, most of you will know the background to that hymn, I'm sure. Guy who rejoiced in the name, I don't know if you saw it in the small print at the bottom, of Augustus Top Lady. What a cracker of a name. Um, who got caught in a storm one day. I think it was down in Devon at Cheddar Gorge. And a terrible storm. And uh, he, he went to the, this, 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 this gorge, the, these rocks, to shelter to be in refuge from the storm. And as he was there, he penned these words, or or he penned it shortly afterwards, as he thought about um, sheltering from the, the physical storm, 
He thought about the importance of taking refuge in Christ as a hiding place from the spiritual storm. Let me hide myself in thee. Let me hide myself. The place of protection. The place of shelter. Just as these people are way back then. That is exactly what we need to say. Let me hide myself in thee. Second point um, of detail from the Passover. uh, I would just like to point out. is from verse number 46. And in among the detail, it says there, you shall not break any of its bones. Now, that must have been tricky. You know, you think about it. So, first of all, you know, the lamb has to be killed. Well, be careful how you kill it. Make sure you don't break a bone. The lamb has to be cooked. Well, be very careful how you cook it so that you don't break any of its bones. And then it has to be eaten, but eaten in a way that none of its bones are to be broken. Well, what is the point of that? What is the symbolism of this? Well, thankfully, we're not left to our own imagination. Because if you turn your Bible uh, to John 19 and 36, you read about the crucifixion of Christ. And you read about the soldiers. And they walk up the hill of Calvary. And they come to the three crosses. They come to the first cross of the thief. And he's still alive. And so they break his legs. They break his legs to hasten his death. They come to the other thief. Similarly, still alive, they break his legs. They come to Christ. They find that he's dead already because he has dismissed his, his own spirit. It's finished. The work is done. They do not break his legs so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. This is pointing us to to a greater event, to the great Lamb of God. Not a bone of whose body is broken as he is crucified. And you say, well, what on earth is the point of that? Well, let, let me... Let me try and help you on this one. The first and the greatest promise and prediction of salvation in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall of man, after the curse of sin affects the world, God holds out this beacon of hope. He says, the seed of the woman, Christ, will crush the head of the serpent, and he shall bruise his heel. What's happening at Calvary? This conflict that has been taking place, in a sense, all the way through history, comes to its final point. The seed of the woman, Christ, the great serpent. And the head of the serpent is absolutely fractured. The bones are broken. The skull is splintered. Christ is bruised. Christ is bloodied. 
but he's never broken. He's never broken. Let there be no doubt who is the victor upon the cross. Let there be no doubt about what is happening here as Christ gives himself. He's destroying absolutely satanic power and influence and death itself. There is no doubt at all about who is the victor and who is the vanquished. Christ is not broken. Satan is broken. Can I say that there is a lesson for all of us? You know, there are times in life when we we feel we are nearly broken by the experiences of life and the things that happen. You know, it's it's very interesting, actually. You, You Maybe later on you want to read... I think it's something like 2 Corinthians chapter 10 or 11, where Paul speaks about his, his experiences when he says, you know, we, we feel downtrodden, we feel oppressed, but we don't feel completely crushed under it all. You know, we might well be bloodied and bruised ourselves through the experiences of life, but because of our association with Christ, the great Lamb of God, and all his promises, to bring us through and to take us all the way to glory, we will never be broken by that. We'll never be broken because we're associated with Christ. It's a tremendous point for us to hang on to today. Now, that, that in a sense, is redemption, its meaning. We're now going to move on to the implications of it more briefly. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, And we're going to think, first of all, not now of the Passover, but of the the consecration of of the firstborn. So what they're told to do, this is another ceremony that they have to observe, is that all the firstborn, all the firstborn males, interestingly, not not just humans, but, but animals as well, they all were to be dedicated, consecrated, set apart to the Lord. Now, we know the reason for that. The reason is this, that on the night of the Passover, the firstborn who were sheltering under the blood were all saved. In all the other houses, the firstborn son died, and the firstborn animals, they all died. I mean, terrible plague that happened throughout the land. But the firstborn sons under the blood were all saved. They were all redeemed. And so God says, these actually, as you can see in chapter 13, verse 2, they're all mine now. All of them are mine. So what used to happen, what had to happen, is that in generations that followed, every time there was a firstborn son born in the family, that son had to be redeemed. That is, a lamb had to be offered and sacrificed every time that child was born. And so you even get that, if you remember, in the, in the Christmas story. You know, when, when Moses and Joseph take the child up to the temple to do for him according to the custom of the law. You know, and they, they, they gave, it could be actually... And, and it was in the case of um, 
of, of, of Jesus' family because they were poor. It wasn't a lamb. It was, it was some pigeons that they offered. But the, this is the principle. Redemption of the firstborn. The firstborn are mine. They belong to me now. And so what is really happening is that throughout all their generations, not just once a year when the Passover is being celebrated, but virtually every day of the week, they are remembering this concept of redemption. And the children that are born, oh, we need, to, we need to go through with this ceremony because we remember that's what it means. And even with, with their animals. So some of the animals themselves had to be sacrificed. If, if you were an unclean animal, you know, the donkey is mentioned here. So donkey was, of course, valuable as a beast of burden, but was an unclean animal. If that donkey, that firstborn donkey was to live, it says here that a lamb had to be offered instead. And if you, if you weren't prepared to do that, the neck of the donkey was broken at birth and it lost its life. But the principle of redemption is again being emphasized here. And the implication of redemption is this, consecration. The consecration of the first one. You now are mine. Because of redemption, because of how I saved you, you are mine. They are mine. Now, that, that point is taken up for us in, in our New Testament many a time. That there are implications to me experiencing redemption. You know, it's not just, well, that's fair enough, and I just swan on and live my life as I want to live it. No, no. For those who realize the price that has been paid for them to be saved, who realize the enormity of what has happened as far as the giving of the Son of God for me. I mean, how can we be the same? We, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, you're not your own anymore. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, you need to honor God in your body. I mean, that verse actually is in the context of immorality taking place, impure living. It says you can't live however you please. You're, you're not your own. You're not in charge. You've been purchased. You're ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And there are implications to that. You're not your own. Now, that takes a, a big shift in mindset, doesn't it? And that's the way Christian redeemed people are meant to have their minds shifted. So the things I do, the decisions I make, the way I spend my money, all of these things should come under this kind of way of thinking. I am not my own. I belong to Christ. He's my master. I have been bought and I've been bought with a tremendous price. That is the message of the ritual of the consecration of the firstborn. Now, the last one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, it's interesting. If you read down this, the details, you'll, you'll see that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, they, they both kind of merge into each other. 
It, it goes on for seven days, but it starts with the Passover, and then it just kind of, you know, almost seamlessly uh, moves into the unleavened bread. They're, they're both one, and and, I, and that in itself is, is sending as a as a message. You know, one is the implication of the other because the one happened, then the other happens as well. So, so what is the idea? Well, you know, they didn't have any yeast in their bread and uh, no leaven in their bread. So what was the point of that? Well, the point, you, you'll read it in um, chapter 12 and verse 39. Um, it wasn't leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and couldn't wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now, it takes time. I'm not any great cook or baker, but I do know that uh, yeast and leaven, it takes a a little bit of time to rise, make the bread, that sourdough or whatever it is that we all enjoy. They didn't have any time for that. I mean, what happened on that night, the the night of Egypt, was absolutely fast. It was decisive. You know, it was quick and dramatic. And on that night, they were out. God delivered them decisively, immediately, so quick that they didn't even have time for, for yeast to rise in their bread. So, I mean, that, that's part of the message of, of unleavened bread. I mean, even, you, you'll see when you read that there in verse number 40, it's put side by side. The fastness of it all is, is, is put side by side with 430 years. <laughs> you know, they waited over four centuries four centuries of trouble and tears, uh, so long that many people could, could have been forgiven for saying, God's forgotten about us. God is not there. You know, there is nothing going on. It's just oppression after oppression, year after year, century after century. There's going to be no change here. And yet when, when the clock struck, when God's time came, bang, it was so quick, you couldn't even wait for the bread to rise. You know, that should be encouraging for us. You know, we live by faith, not by sight. And faith means it's not always by what we see all round about us, which can be so demoralizing and discouraging. And for those of us who are walking through difficult times, hold on to this, that God's promises will come. And when they come, they will certainly come. And they will be decisive. There's a, there's a tremendous phrase here, actually. Let me just point it out to you in verse 42, where it says, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. God was keeping vigil. You know, in the same way as you've got a, a sick child at home with a temperature and a sore throat, and you're worried about them. Are they going to have a febrile convulsion? What's going to happen here? And you're, you're sitting over, it's in, in vigil. You're watching over them. That, that's what God was doing this night. God kept watch over his people, like children. And now he says, you are to keep watch. There are things that you now need to do in reference to the things of God. You, you need to be watchful. You need to be careful. You need to be vigilant, vigilant in what you're doing. And, and this is part of it, the feast. 
of, of unleavened bread. The decisiveness, the quickness of it all. Now, what, what, what am I getting at? Well, here, here we go. When, when a person places their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord and says, I'm sheltering under the blood of Christ, there is something that takes place quickly, very fast, immediately, decisively. Let, let, let me put it to you in the words of Christ himself, who said, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me shall not pass into condemnation. They're passed over from death to life. Immediately. Right at that moment of faith in Christ, you pass over from death to life. You're saved at that point. And it's the power of God that does that. It's the grace of God that does that. It's the effectiveness of the, of the work of Christ that does that. And it's immediate. And nothing can stop it. All right? It's a wonderful thing. So, I mean, it's the same way as, you know, you sign your name on some document or other. You know, it's a, it's a legal thing. And at that very moment, you've got to be very careful. Read all that small print. Because when you sign your name on that line on the bottom, at that moment, you know, that is legal. And things change right away when your name is signed there. Now, it's exactly the same with this point of faith in Christ. As far as the books in heaven are concerned, the person who who places faith in Christ immediately is a child of God. God's Spirit enters into their life, and they belong to Christ now. There's a decisiveness about the whole thing. Now, there is a second point uh, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the point comes to us because of the way that leaven or yeast works. You know, so it's, it's a kind of invisible thing. You know, the, the, the yeast is in there, the bread's in the oven, and over a period of time, you just see the thing all starting to rise. And, and, and that's frequently used in the Bible. There is a kind of hidden, pervasive influence, if you like, that leaven comes to be an illustration of. So, for instance, Jesus, on one occasion, spoke to his disciples and said to them, you need to be careful. You need to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, they didn't get it. They thought, oh, we forgot to bring bread for the trip today. But he wasn't talking about that. He was speaking to them about the leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees and the leaven of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He said, be very careful. That kind of hypocrisy that is epitomized by these people, it's a very insidious, infiltrative, dangerous, pervasive kind of thing that can affect everything all around about you. You have to be on guard against the leaven of hypocrisy. You know, we've been saved and we need to keep the feast of unleavened bread, if you like. 
We need to be very careful about the leaven of things like hypocrisy that can easily influence and infect all of us. There's another um, illustration of that, actually. I'll maybe get you to turn to this one. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're just about to finish. Don't worry. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and at verse 6. You know, this is a pretty serious situation in this church. If you look up at verse 1, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant about this. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we're saying in the context of a church, if you tolerate evil and wickedness, I mean, that somehow or another is going to influence and affect the whole church. A little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. So you need to deal with that. And that, that's a message that comes to us about wickedness, about malice. Let's celebrate the festival. Unleavened bread. That's, that's the point. That's the, the lesson that comes to us. So, there we go. Redemption. It's, it's a seismic thing. And it needs commemorating. It needs teaching. Its its meaning needs to be taught. And its implications need to be taught by our lives. I mean, frequently throughout this passage, you get the idea, this is for the next generation as well. Your children watch you doing all these things. They ask questions of you. What does this mean? Why do you do that? What's all this about? That's, that's so that you can teach them what happened to you, and so that your children might also learn the meaning of these things, so that it's not lost in the mists of time. And so today we've highlighted from this seemingly obscure passage such a powerful and a relevant message for all our hearts about God's redemption, its meaning, and its implications for all of us. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his blood, the preciousness of his blood shed upon the cross that can redeem us from all wickedness and can make us into your people, your special people. So, Lord, may the strength and the power of that message of redemption touch all our hearts and the implications lie heavy upon us so that we might honor Christ by the way we live, as we ask in his name. Amen.